I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. The mediums and the spiritists, I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The waters of the river will dry up, and the river beds will be parched and dry. The canals will sink. The streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will wither, also the plants along the mile, at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will grow and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water, will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected, and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counsellors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them the spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does, as drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Cana and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a, moment, and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a saviour and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings, and they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, 
by inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thank you. It'd be helpful uh, if you keep that passage open in front of you, uh, Isaiah 19. Uh, and also on the back of uh, the notices, you'll find uh, an outline uh, of this passage. You might want to take notes and uh, follow that through. Um, I'm going to pray before we start, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, we thank you uh, for your words. We thank you for this book of Isaiah. We pray now that you will uh, soften our hearts and open our ears to what you have to say for us uh, here and now. In your name, amen. So, uh, what do you fear most? It's quite a big question. It's quite a personal question. It's actually a, a question I asked last week to the 18 to 25 group. I did semi-warn them about this, uh, so hopefully they won't be too surprised. But on the next slide, you'll see uh, a graph, which is uh, the statistics of what they feared most. I also asked uh, the fellowship group um, at Cornhill, where I studied two days a week, and I asked them, what are they most afraid of? What do they fear most? Uh, And on here, you'll see uh, a mix of stuff, but kind of the big three, you see sort of death, uh, rejection, and loss of loved ones, that uncontrollable thing, whether it's a family member or a friend, losing them, and ultimately losing them to death. Those are perhaps some things that you can uh, relate to as well. Perhaps those are some of your biggest fears uh, in life as well. Well, looking then at this passage in Isaiah 19, we see that Egypt is afraid, as well as Israel and Judah are afraid but the question is, what are they afraid of? So just giving you some historical background then. Um, this book was, uh, sorry, not this book. Um, in 930 BC, we see uh, Israel and the, the kingdom of Israel split into two. We have the ten tribes in the north, which become Israel. And in the south, we see the two tribes, which become Judah. And about 200 years later, uh, we see Israel is defeated by the Assyrians, that northern kingdom is taken over and they're taken into exile. And again, about 200 years later, just to give you some context, Judah is defeated by the Babylonians and they're also taken into exile. But today in this chapter, chapter 19, we see that uh, it's written roughly just about before, and that red line is about 730 BC, um, just before Israel is taken into exile by the Assyrians. The purpose for which Isaiah wrote this, um, that this is for King Hezekiah and the people of Judah that he led. And they're considering making Egypt uh, an ally. And we have a look at some geographical context. So we see here, this is roughly the area we're looking at in the Middle East. And on the next slide, we see, uh, this is a modern day map, just to give you some understanding where these places are. Um, That's uh, where the Syrian Empire would have been, so Syria and uh, northern Iraq, that would be in the Egyptian Empire, in Egypt, unsurprisingly. And in between, we have uh, little old uh, Israel and Judah. And Isaiah is writing this to King Hezekiah and the people of Judah as they think of joining an alliance with Egypt. Uh, The Assyrian Empire is growing more and more powerful and controls huge areas of land throughout the Middle Eastern area. Israel is on the brink of defeat, and Judah is in one of its greatest times of need. And instead of turning to God for help, they begin to look to Egypt. 
Can you blame them, considering their circumstances, considering what we see behind me? I wonder what you would do in their place. Ultimately, though, Egypt is not Judah's solution. And so God brings judgment on Egypt, the people who aren't following him. So then, into some introductory stuff. We see in verses 1 to 15, the collapse of Egypt. We see God's judgment. And this first half of this passage is a poem that Isaiah writes, and it shows to us God's judgment against them. So, uh, yeah, the first part of this chapter is a poem describing God's judgment of Egypt. And in verse 1 we read, of God riding on a cloud. Now, you might be thinking kind of Aladdin on a magic carpet, or perhaps, I don't know, Santa on a sled. But this is pretty much as far away from a guy with a white beard on a fluffy cloud, as you can imagine. The Israelites would have heard this, and they would have understood it as the Lord God expressing his divine sovereignty, carrying out his judgment, something so far away from that image, as you can imagine. The only other Old Testament reference to God riding on the heavens is in Psalm 18, where we see the Lord swooping down to rescue David uh, against his enemies. And it's the same principle here. Egypt, posing as a friend, is a deadly threat to David's kingdom, and God is swift to come to their aid um, and save his people. God's judgment is severe, and we see in these first 15 verses, uh, and within this poem, that God carries out his judgment in three specific areas. So firstly then, in verses 2 to 4, we see a social collapse. It's not hard to imagine in our own society today where we see division and conflict between uh, families, between neighbourhoods and cities and even nations. And it's not hard to relate to what the Egyptians are going through here within the social collapse. Also, we see plenty of cruel leaders and dictatorships. You don't have to look far You don't have to be watching the news for more than five minutes to hear about another cruel dictatorship rising up. And it's very much, uh, yeah, the issue then as it is today, and it was in 3,000 years ago in Egypt. And we see the following two sections of this poem where Isaiah is describing God's judgment upon Egypt. Um, They also are very relatable to today. So verses 5 to 10, we see an economic collapse. We read in these verses of Egypt, Uh, who were so reliant on the Nile for income and for sustaining themselves, they faced complete economic turmoil as the result of the river drying up. And then in verse 11 to 13, we see a political collapse. Um, We see a failure from Egypt's political leaders. They're clueless and ultimately unable to help the people they lead in their time of need. All these problems in society, economics and politics have a spiritual causation. These various collapses within Egypt are the outworking of divine purposes and are directly traceable to the hand of God. And are not simply the outworking of sociological laws, market forces or political fortunes. The only way that these problems can be solved is by turning to the Lord. The purpose of 1-15 to of this poem for Isaiah was to express to King Hezekiah and his contemporaries that joining with, with Egypt would to be to associate themselves with a nation under divine wrath. Looking at those three spe- specific areas in which Egypt collapsed, Isaiah is making it clear to them, join Egypt, trust the promises of a divided people, look to a collapsing economy for help, 
seek wisdom where there is none, only folly? No. In verse 15, 1 to 15, we see a strong warning from Isaiah. Beware, God is acting in judgment. Make sure you're on his side and not on the side of those who are against him. The question Isaiah is asking, and the question I just asked you is, what do you fear? Who do you fear more, Assyria or God? Who do you trust more, Egypt or God? So in verses 1 to 15, we see God's judgment. However, divine wrath is not the final word you'll be glad to hear. Alongside this judgment in verses 1 to 15, we see salvation. We see the Lord's solution. And, yeah, we've got kind of that mirror image of two thumbs there. And it's, it's really interesting just how much these two sections within this chapter are very much the complete opposite of each other, complete contrast. Um, as it's my first time preaching here, I thought I would help you with a little bit of alliteration. So we've got four R's uh, to uh, explain uh, this passage uh, to us. So the first one is response. And in verse is, uh, 16 to 17, we see the right response to fear. So in verse 1, the hearts of the Egyptians were melting with fear. It's pretty vivid language, and it really gets across just how terrified the Egyptians were of the Lord's coming judgment. And in the second half of the chapter, we're given another striking description of the Egyptian circumstance. They're shuddering with fear. They've become weaklings, and understandably so. For all they know at this stage is dread of what might lie ahead. They as yet do not know what the Lord Almighty is planning, that it is their welfare. Their fear is the beginning of wisdom. And the effects of this humbling, wisdom-inducing fear had can be seen in the following sections. In verse 18, we see one language and one Lord. Looking back at that poem and the judgment, we see in verse 2 that the Egyptians will be divided, that they will rise up against each other, brother against brother, uh, neighbour against neighbour, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. There is complete disunity throughout the nation, from area to area and from household to household. Utter division. However, following on from verse 17, the Egyptians' fear of the Lord causes them to turn to him. And in verse 18, read that five cities will speak the language of Canaan. The phrase, the language of Canaan, is directly translated as the lip of Canaan, uh, which very naturally reminds us of Isaiah's own experience at his commission. So cast your mind back, if you can, uh, to three weeks ago when Nick was speaking to us from Isaiah chapter 6, and we saw there um, his commission, but we also saw um, Isaiah recognising his sinful state. And in verses, in verse 5, we read, Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The Egyptians were a people of unclean lips, and a fractured society made a people with unclean lips, who turned to false gods and idols in their time of need, and not to God. They were ruined in their sin, as Isaiah was. But looking back again at chapter 6, we see how God deals with Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah was forgiven, his sin removed, with the purging of his lips. 
Here, back in chapter 19, in the case of the Egyptians, they turned to God and spoke the lip of Canaan. This was the first mark of their turning to the Lord. The second mark was their allegiance to him. They made a promise to follow the Lord God Almighty. With small beginnings, with just these five cities, even Egypt begins to participate in the unity of God's worldwide uh, kingdom and begin to follow him. The stark contrast between the complete division and disunity that we see in verse 2 within God's judgment and that of verse 18 where we see one language being spoken and one Lord being followed is unmissable. So then finally in this section on repent, um, where do you turn to in your time of need? So it's a picture of a guy with a wardrobe behind me. Um, perhaps you can relate to him if you've done a bit of DOY yourself. Maybe you've been to Ikea recently and you've attempted to put together one of these tricky wardrobes. Uh, and perhaps actually you know, the instructions aren't all that clear. Maybe they're in Swedish, maybe they're just pictures and they don't really make any sense at all. So who would you turn to in that situation? Maybe you might phone your dad and say, have you got any advice for me? Can you help? Or perhaps you might Google it and see if there's a YouTube video which will take you step by step on how to construct this wardrobe. I remember once, uh, whilst I was at university, um, I was in the lounge with my housemates and we were chatting and generally not working. Um, and four of my housemates were sitting on the sofa and I was kind of leaning slash sitting on the table in the lounge. Um, and Dan Hawkins, who some of you may know, um, my other housemate, he came and joined me and, and sat on the table. And of course, the inevitable happened. With a loud snap, the table collapsed and uh, myself and Dan fell to the floor, much to our embarrassment, but much to the amusement um, of our housemates. But then the issue arose, you know, we have a broken table. What are we going to do? Who were we going to turn to in our time of need? So Dan and I decided we were going to be manly men and deal with the situation ourselves. So we headed down to our, our local B&Q, picked up some, some nails and some wood, and we decided we were going to fix this table. But of course, as you can imagine, we failed miserably um, and didn't do a very good job. And then, therefore, we had, for the rest of the term, really, this really wobbly table with kind of newspaper stuffed underneath it to try and balance it out, but it wasn't great. Um, and actually, it wasn't until pretty much the day that we were leaving that our other housemates suggested that she could get her dad to come and fix it. And he came, had a look at it, brought his toolkit, and within about 40 minutes, he had fixed it, and it was as good as new. In that situation, in our time of need, Dan and I turned to our own limited DIY expertise. When in actual fact, we would be much better off going to someone with the right know-how and with the right tools. More seriously, though, if we're facing loss, health issues, loneliness, depression, financial difficulties, who do we turn to? Who do we seek help from in our greatest times of need? Well, in verse 3 of the poem, we saw that the fearful Egyptians responded to their difficulties by turning to idols and the dead for help and guidance. But here, again, we see complete contrast to that in verses 19 to 20. They're still afraid, but this time it's the right response to fear, a healthy fear of the Lord Almighty one that humbles them and ultimately leads them to turning to God. We read that there will be an altar to God in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord on its border. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see that the altar was a place of reconciliation, where sins would be forgiven 
and where the sinner would be reconciled to God. The border monument marks a place where the Lord dwells. And a clear example of this can be seen in Genesis with Jacob, who, fearing God, built a monument uh, made of stone and named it Bethel, which means the house of God. So from this, we can see that uh, from the very borders of Egypt, where this monument was built, um, it marked that Egypt was the house of God. What began to be true in the case of those five cities that we read about in the previous verse, we now see for the whole land. From the heart, from the centre of Egypt, we see this altar. To the very borders, uh, to the very edge of the land, we see this monument. These were physical signs to the reality of their membership with Israel as children of God. The Egypts responding rightly to their fear humble themselves and turn to God in their time of need and not to idols and the dead. The contrast from verse 20 and that of verse 3 is wonderfully apparent. In verse 3 we see that with fear, division, conflict and failure the Egyptians respond by consulting idols and spirits of the dead and mediums. But in verse 20 we see that when they are facing hardship at the hands of their oppressors they cry out to the Lord. They enter into a speaking relationship with him. They pray to God. And any good relationship is not a one-way business, as I'm sure we'll be reminded of this coming Saturday on Valentine's Day. Note to self, buy some flowers. But no, it's, it's, not, it's a two-way thing. It's that fellowship that we have with God. Unlike their idols of wood, stone and metal, and unlike the dead, God hears them and responds to their cries. In their time of need, God provides a rescuer from their oppression. He will send them a saviour and a defender. And that brings us on to our, our second R, which is rescue. So looking at verse 20 then, we see rescue. But I wonder, do you ever feel like God isn't listening? That he's some distant entity that can't really be spoken with or really and properly known or understood? Well, what better way to be reminded that God hears our prayers than by reading that in answer to the Egyptians' cries, God sends a saviour. Egypt, the enemy of God's people, are able to call upon God and he answers their cries. There is no one too lost, no one who has done too much evil. All can call out to God in repentance and they will be saved. God answers the Egyptians' cries and sends a saviour. Whatever issues or or difficulties we're coming against, we can take such comfort in the fact that God has heard uh, our prayers and he has given the solution to our many, many problems, his only son. Jesus is that saviour, the defender, the rescuer that Isaiah is talking about here. Jesus will rescue us from our sin and will ultimately rescue us from our many, many problems and all our oppressors. Now, I'm not saying that if you believe in Jesus and trust him, that all your problems will vanish overnight, that your back pain won't hurt hurt anymore, that you'll get your promotion that you need uh, in your job, that your nearest and dearest won't die. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, and what Isaiah is saying here, is that through Jesus, we have salvation from our sins. And with that, we have the hope of an eternity without suffering, without loss, loneliness, conflict, hate or pain. That is our hope. And some helpful New Testament verses that uh, kind of support this we see in Galatians. We read, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father. And again in Colossians we read, For God has rescued us from from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that first R then we see response, and that right response, that humility that leads us to turn to God. And following on from this, the Lord will hear us and will rescue us in our time of need. And the third R then we see relationship in verses 21 and 22. So the emphasis here isn't just what we're, uh, what we're saved from alone, but Isaiah also stresses what we're saved for that we can have this personal relationship with God. In verse 21 we read that the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices, they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. God, the Lord Almighty, will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, the slave masters of old, the idol worshippers, Israel's ancient enemy, will acknowledge God. Uh, and worship him. What a fantastic verse. What a turnaround. But how is all this possible? Well, through Jesus, through our rescuer, who not only saves us from our wrongs, but enables us to know God, the Almighty, and worship him. And what a privilege that is. We also see in this section, uh, in verse 22, that part of an active, loving relationship involves discipline and correction. In Proverbs, uh, we read that those who God loves, he chastens. And the purposeful uh, discipline uh, of the Lord is part of uh, life under his care, designed, as in the case with Egypt, to make them turn to the Lord, to make us more reliant on him. Again, we see uh, from these verses such an opposite reflection from that of the judgment poem. In verse 4, we read, uh, sorry, we hear that there will be a cruel master. Uh, a fierce king who will rule over them, a dictator. But with God, we have a king who hears our cries, who responds to them, a king who we can uh, speak to and communicate with, a king who lovingly corrects us, a king who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Final, the final R, then, is reconciliation. And it's here that we see the crescendo of Isaiah's writing on God's salvation plan. This is the part uh, that the people of Judah would have had uh, most difficulty with hearing and trying to get their heads around. All around them is this war, uneasy alliances, and the rising power of empires. We have Assyria, the superpower, and Egypt, the unreliable ally. And between the two, Israel. And it's in this setting that Isaiah says in verse 23 that the Assyrians and and Egyptians would worship together. Now, some of you may be thinking that I used uh, reconciliation as my fourth R word just because, well, I needed a fourth R word. And I can assure you that you're only partly right. But but actually, looking up the definition of reconciliation uh, in the Oxford uh, Dictionary, um, I read that restoration is... Um, reconciliation, sorry, is the restoration of friendly relations. And we see here that all created people originally in that perfection, in that harmony, in that worship with God, but ultimately through sin, by turning away from him, that unity is lost and falls into complete and utter division. But now here, 
through reconciliation, through salvation in Jesus, we see the nations coming back together again and those friendly relations being restored. The Assyrians and Egyptians, those two great enemies, will worship God together. It's a bit of a silly illustration, but it's kind of like David Cameron saying that one day the leaders of ISIS and Vladimir Putin will one day come together and sing, God save the gracious queen. It's pretty much impossible to imagine. Now that is a bit of a silly example, but that's how it might have sounded to uh, the people of Judah here. There's no way that's going to happen. Um, uh, Egypt, the historic enemy, who could not be trusted, and Assyria, the superpower destroying all in its path, will come together and worship God. Surely not. But it gets even better. In verses 24 and 25, we see that Israel is also thrown into the mix, and that together, these three nations would be a blessing and be blessed by the Lord Almighty. The day that Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are all at peace will be the day that every nation is at peace. This amazing chapter ends in a truly amazing way, with naming the nations. Israel, so I actually just got a map behind me, you see those three nations who are in such clear conflict together then and also now, actually all coming together and all being united in worship of God. And it's when these three nations are all at peace together, then we actually know that the world will be at peace. Um, and it's God that when God names these three nations, it says, Israel, my inheritance, Assyria, my handiwork, my handiwork, and Egypt, now having turned to God, will be his people. In Exodus, the cry from Moses is, let my people go. But now we see that God refers to them as Egypt, my people. It's such a clear turnaround. The redemption plan is complete. We've seen Egypt begin under God's severe judgment. But then, with the right response to fear and judgment, we see the entirety of Egypt proclaiming his name. To now, finally, in these verses, we see the whole world united in worshipping the Lord Almighty. The whole world is united in worship of him. Gentile and Jew united, all forgiven, all welcomed, all welcomed into God's kingdom. Nothing could more wonderfully signify God's salvation plan for mankind. So then, we've seen these four R's. We've seen response, and if you have that right response to uh, suffering, to hardship, to judgment, then we turn to God. We cry out to him, and we are able to cry out to him, and he provides us with that rescuer who we so desperately need to save us from our sin, but also to save us with a purpose, to save us to have that relationship with him and with his father. Ultimately, all bringing us together, and that one day we can look forward to having reconciliation together. But what does this all mean for us today? Isaiah and the people he was writing to all happened a long time ago. But I don't know about you, but we certainly can have times where we're going through hardship, hard times. I wonder, during those times, it can seem so hard that, to understand what God's plan is, what God is doing in those situations, why he allows those things to happen. But will we allow the, that fear, those hardships, to drive us away from God? Or like in that second half, will it drive us towards him and in faith like the Egyptians? Perhaps you don't know Jesus as your personal saviour, that saviour rescuer, 
And you might be feeling like Stephen Fry did in that recent interview that you had. How dare you, God? How dare you allow this suffering if you exist? But don't consult man. Don't trust the Egyptians. That was Isaiah's word to Judah. Don't rely on self-help books and don't rely on yoga, but actually turn to God for salvation. There's no other hope other than in in Jesus. Cry out to him like the Egyptians did, and he will hear you, and he will rescue us. Pray to God. Take advantage uh, of this amazing relationship that we have available to us through Jesus, his son. Such a costly price. Are we talking to God uh, like the Egyptians did? Are we crying out to him in those hard times? And are we taking everything to him in prayer? because he does listen to us, and because he does care for us. All this is made possible through Jesus. God has sent a saviour and a defender, and through him we can be rescued from our sin. Through Jesus we can be united in our redemption. Through Jesus we can communicate and have relationship with God. And through Jesus we can experience hope and security Uh, knowing that ultimately, whatever we're facing now won't last forever, but we can have that hope for an eternity with him in perfection. So finally then, I'm going to leave you with a choice. Will you fear man, or will you fear God? Will you trust man, or will you trust God? Let's finish in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you again uh, for this passage, and we thank you uh, for the clear challenge that Isaiah sets out for the people of Judah, to trust him and not to trust man. Father, it can be so easy to say these words, but in practice, it can be so hard to carry them out. I pray that you will help me and you will help everyone here to really live uh, our lives uh, seeking you out, not in just the easy times, in the good times, but also in the hard to be taking uh, everything to you in prayer and ultimately relying on your Saviour and uh, celebrating that relationship we have with you. We thank you for all of these things uh, through your Son. Amen.